Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. And I'm glad to see you. You may not be as glad to see me, but I'm very glad to see you. Um, what a great day it is to praise the Lord, right? Would you agree with that? What a great day it is to praise the Lord. Is there a bad day to praise the Lord? I wouldn't say so. Every day is a great day to praise the Lord because, you know, God is the great beater of odds. Do you realize that? God beats the odds. When the odds are against you, but God is for you, you're going to beat the odds. You know that? The scripture says if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? With God, all things are possible. So I'm excited about this new series we're starting today, Against All Odds. And we have five weeks from today, including today, to where we celebrate Easter, which I would say is maybe the most miraculous day in history. Each week leading up to that day, we want to prepare our hearts and our minds for uh, the miracle of God and how God can still use the truth of that miracle to change our lives today. So I, I'm going to ask you a question. Now, look, if, if you, uh, there are no, well, there are law enforcement officers in here, but um, uh, they're not going to, we don't have cameras on you, so anything you admit to, um, we're not going to put the handcuffs on you today, okay? So if I ask how many of you have ever come to a rolling stop at a stop sign, do y'all know what that means? Like you, you don't actually stop, but you just sort of roll, you sort of ease through it, right? And nobody's coming, so you know, it's sort of you just go through uh, would you be willing to raise your hand if you've done this, okay? Right? Oh, well, I see, I see hands and feet going up, all right? Uh, again, any, any officers in, in the house, just close your eyes uh, as we say this. Now, raise your hand if you have ever driven over the speed limit. Raise your hand if you've ever driven over the speed limit. Now, if you are over 16 years old and you did not raise your hand, some of us are thinking you're lying, okay? <laughs> that, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, you just don't want to admit it. Now, I know there are probably some of you that obey every traffic law that's out there, <clears throat> but uh, I'm not going to ask if you've ever texted while driving. Uh, I'm not going to ask if you ever took your phone and were talking on the phone while you were driving. But here's the truth. We can't possibly pay for all of our sin. I want to ask you this. What if you had to pay a $200 fine every time you broke a traffic law? Now, now realize, I didn't say every time you got caught. Every time you broke a traffic law, um, you would not be able to pay the price of that, would you? Right? It would be way too high. The Bible says every time 
that we cross a moral line, a, a biblically, thus saith the Lord line, there is a price to pay. Every time we cheat on a test, every time we fudge the truth, every time we take something that doesn't belong to us, every time we say something intentionally to hurt someone, every time we cross a sexual boundary, every time, well, you fill in the blank, every time there is a spiritual price to pay, and the truth is we can't pay it. Have you come to that conclusion yet? That there's no way you can pay the debt that you owe for all the sins that you've committed? God knew that we couldn't pay the price. And so the amazing message of the gospel is that God sent his son to pay it for us. Amen? Only our punishment isn't a monetary fine. It's a spiritual one. Because when we do something that breaks God's law, that rejects God's truth, we are separated from God. And we have to live separated from God forever if we don't accept God's solution. Now, God didn't want it this way. The Bible tells us that God so loved who? The world. Now, he loved the world even though he knew the whole world was involved in sin. He did this because he didn't want there to be a separation. And so he sent Jesus to pay for our sin, to redeem us, and to mend the broken relationship that was there. The only thing that disqualifies us from receiving this payment for sin is our unwillingness to accept the sin payment on our behalf. I mean, if you broke the law, you know, the, the courts would probably allow me to come pay your fine. Now, my wife wouldn't allow me to do that, but the courts might allow me to do that. But, you know, when it comes to our relationship with God, no one that I know could pay for my sin. I cannot take my children's sin off of them. And, and my mother or my family or my loved one can't take my sin and pay the price for that sin. There's only one who could pay the price for that sin, and it's Jesus Christ. Now, God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he offers, really, the deal of a lifetime. And I, you know, you see these shows, you know, let's make a deal and all this stuff. You know, this is really the deal of a lifetime. We accept his offer that he has freely given to, to free us from sin and the consequences of sin or we can stay enslaved to sin for the rest of our lives and spend eternity separated from God. Now that is the condition of mankind right now. We're already separated from God because of our sin. 
if we accept Jesus, that can all change. So what Jesus did, I would suggest to you, is historic, it is supernatural, and it is sacrificial. And we're calling this series Against All Odds because what Jesus did for us really was against all odds, even though it was all predicted. Now, let's think about prophetic predictions here for a moment. Hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth, God sent a series of prophets to tell his people that someone was coming, a Messiah was coming. And we know that Messiah is Jesus, but he was trying to let his people know this is, this is coming. One of those prophets was named Isaiah. Now, Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus. He wrote one of the longest books in the Bible, and he lived one of the longest lives of a prophet. His active ministry lasted 60 years. Isn't that amazing? You know, I'm I'm coming up on 25 years here at Christ Church. He had 60. Man, I don't think y'all want that, right? Somewhere during the time, he wrote a, a powerful chapter of Scripture. Now, I believe it was inspired by the Holy Spirit as God told him what he wanted him to write. But this chapter, written seven centuries before Jesus, is so accurate that it's either scary or it is supernatural. Over the next five weeks, we're going to focus on Isaiah 53. And by the time we're through, you're going to know Isaiah 53 like the back of your hand. And it's a good thing because it is so powerful. You're going to be more astounded by Jesus than maybe you are right now. The message of Isaiah 53 actually starts in Isaiah 52. And I've asked some of our young people to come up today and to read this passage. It's a little longer today. And so uh, would you welcome our young people up on our stage today as they come to share out of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. And just remember to say what verses you're reading before you read. Okay, yeah. Isaiah 52, 13 through 15 says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as it as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance were so was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. And Isaiah, and Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty that attracted us. To him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Verses 3 and 4. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was 
Isaiah 5, 53, 5, and 6. He, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the, laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verses 7 and 8. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. Isaiah 53, 1 and 2. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was with the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord make his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verses 11 and 12. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, by my righteous servant, will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he has poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made, tra and made intercession for the transgressors. Amen. Thank you, guys. Give them a hand. Well, that's really saved my voice. That was a lot of scripture there. I appreciate that. Um, so, you know, we read, we, we read that passage, and, you know, a lot of times, a lot of those are familiar words to us. We, if we've been in church a very long time, we've heard a lot of that already. But I want us to sort of get down to it and think about what all those things are saying to us. Now, um, before we get back into that, I, I want to just throw out some random predictions to you okay uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb uh, and I'm gonna predict that within the next three years East Carolina University will win the national basketball championship <laughs> now y'all y'all are laughing like you don't believe how many pirate fans are in here come on raise your hand be proud Okay, so that's, that's, that's a prediction, all right? I'm also going to predict that the Carolina Panthers will win the Super Bowl in the next 10 years. And I'm going to predict for all of you economists in here that the Dow Jones will hit 50,000 within three years. I'm going to predict that within the next 30 years, we will replace all automobiles with flying machines. How about that? Wouldn't that be cool, right? I'm, I'm going to predict that within 50 years, we discover a cure for cancer. Oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? Praise God, if that would be. I'm going to predict that we have a female president within 12 years. How about that? Yeah, that could happen, right? And my final prediction is that Jesus comes back within the next 100 years. How about that? Now, all told, I just gave you seven prophecies or predictions. Now, don't worry, I'm not really predicting these things. I just want to throw out these seven predictions to make a point. And the point is, what is the likelihood of me getting all of these things right? 
I mean, even one of these things right. Now, we might look at some of that and say, well, there's, a, there's some real potential, like East Carolina certainly, you know, within the next three years, they don't have a shot, right? <laughs> but what if, what if I raised the ante and I, and I made five more random predictions? It would bring it to 12, and uh, what are the odds that even half of my predictions would come true, much less all 12? What are the odds I could get twice as many predictions right? If I could get even a few of those, you might be coming and asking me to give you the numbers for the lottery, right? I mean, you would, that might be something you would want to do. Well, several years ago, a man named Dr. Peter Stoner did a study in mathematical probability. Now, he knew from studying Scripture that Jesus fulfilled over 330 prophecies out of the Old Testament while he was on the earth. Now, Stoner was a mathematician by trade, and he set out to calculate the probability that anyone could fulfill that many events predicted in the future. And again, Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus. So, if you toss up a coin in the air, how many of you ever done that? You, you flip a coin. You get, who, who gets to go first? Flip the coin. What is the probability it will land on heads? 50%. Half, right? Now, uh, the probability that it will land on heads twice would be what? 25%. All right, see, you guys, y'all are smart. We got smart mathematicians here. What, what is the probability that one man could fulfill 330 biblical prophecies? Well, well we, we never really know about all 330, but what Stoner did was he tried to full, see what the probability would be if just eight prophecies were fulfilled. The number was so large, he had to use an analogy for it. The number was 1 times 10 to the 17th power. I think that's in your bulletin there. 1 times 10 to the 17th power. That is 1 with 17 zeros behind it. That one man could fulfill 8 of those prophecies. Now, we have an actual English word for that number, 100 quadrillion. 100 quadrillion. That's about where our debt in America will be pretty soon. Now, to, to, he said to appreciate how large that number is, imagine filling the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. Wow. And then mark one silver dollar with a red X and throw it in with all the others and mix them up and blindfold someone and spin them around. If they don't fall, they, they go in and they pick that dollar on the first try. That is the probability that anyone could fulfill eight of those prophecies. Well, you know, there, there's many more. There's 330 prophecies, right? 
so he said, well, let's look at nine prophecies and ten prophecies. And then he went to 12. And when he got to 48 prophecies, he had to stop because the number was so astronomical. It, to, to fulfill 48 of those 330 prophecies was 1 times 10 to the 157th power. One with 157 zeros after it. Now, I know we got some math teachers in here. What, what would we call that number? I know that the other number was a quadrillion number. What is that number? What, 157, uh, I, I think the name of that is crazy, right? Make it simple. The total number of atoms in the universe is one followed by 80 zeros. 700 years before Jesus came to earth, the prophet Isaiah recorded 24 predictions about him in verses uh, chapter 52 and 53. 24 that all came true. What are the odds? Let, let's walk through some of these. I don't have time this morning to do every single one of them, but if you look, there should be an insert in your bulletin that has the complete list, and you can take that home and look at it if you want to. Maybe study it. Maybe that would be something you could do in your quiet time. But in Isaiah 52, 13, we see that my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. According to Isaiah, one day God would send his servant to the earth, and that servant would be successful. Now, lots of people have been successful, so God clarifies it even further. His servant will be successful, so successful, that one day he will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Now, let me show you how exalted Jesus is today. In Revelation chapter 1, we read a picture of the resurrected Jesus in heaven. And the apostle John sees him there. And he writes these words in verses 17 through 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. So I'd say that was a prophecy fulfilled. He would be successful. He did what he came to accomplish. He, he succeeded in fulfilling his father's purpose for him. Isaiah noted that he would be raised and lifted up. He would be highly exalted. Now, there was a moment when it didn't look like that was going to happen. There was a moment as he was taken by the mob, as he went and was tried by those who were in power, as he was condemned to die, as they hung him on a cross, as they buried him in a tomb, it looked like he was a failure. And you know, there are people in the world today that have a hard time believing in Jesus because they think he died. He was killed. How can we believe in that? Well, the only way we can believe in him is if we believe in the resurrection. And that's what made him a success. The next verse says, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was 
so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Now, why were people appalled when they looked at Jesus? It was because he was beaten so badly that he was almost unrecognizable. Now, the Romans used something called a cat of nine tails. And this was a whip with leather straps. And at the end of each leather strap would be bone or stone or metal. And as they would whip you with that, it would cut into your flesh and rip that flesh out. And imagine as they whipped, they didn't care if they hit his back or his head. His face is getting mangled and mauled. Have any of you seen The Passion of the Christ, the movie? Anybody seen that? Maybe that has depicted it as good as anyone could, that he looked almost inhuman, like somewhat, something out of a sci-fi movie. So prophecy number two was that he would be disfigured, and he certainly was. The final verse of chapter 52 says, So he will sprinkle many nations. The kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. So the sprinkling of the nations refers to receiving the good news. Messengers of Jesus have gone out throughout the world, and they have sprinkled the good news in the nations. We support nations, there's flags up there indicating places that we support, missionaries that we support around the world who are sharing the gospel message. Jesus, his name is still getting out there. Often when a king, like a King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, or even later in history in 500 AD, a King Clovis of the Frankish kingdom, they all heard the good news, and they shut their mouths because it was stunning. It was stunning to them that a God, we would say the God, would allow his son to die as a sacrifice for people. See, that's not the way gods from the culture's gods would do it. The culture's gods are all looking after themselves. They, they don't care about uh, human beings. But this was stunning that this is what God would do. Clovis and others have been so amazed at that truth that they led their kingdoms to convert to Christianity. And so fulfilled prophecy number three, Jesus' message reached nations and kings. Moving along, the, the first verse of Matthew 53 doesn't have a prophecy. It's just a question. But when we get to verse 2, we read that he grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So I want you to think about this unique thing about uh, well, it's not so unique about Jesus, but it, it says he grew up. Now, for many, until the birth of Jesus, many of the, the Jewish people believed that, uh, that when Messiah came, he would not come as a baby. 
But God, through Isaiah, prophesied that this is exactly what would happen. Of course, at Christmas time, when we think about the birth of Jesus, we're reminded of that all the time. So prophecy number four is that he grew up. And so far we've covered five verses and there's four prophecies and there's about to be more. The first five verses, again, four prophecies. The last ten verses have 20 prophecies. Now again, I'm not going to mention every one of them this morning. They're in that insert. But let's look in verse 3 of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of sorrow or suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Prophecy number five. He was despised and rejected. Now, that's stunning, isn't it? I mean, on this side of the cross, as we think about who Jesus was, as we think about his love, as we think about the, the, the blessing that he poured out on people to think that he would be despised and rejected. I'd say that it, he's still being despised and rejected by our culture for the most part. Now, in his culture, the Sanhedrin rejected him uh, during those three trials that took place during the night of Good Friday. And the people rejected him when Pilate offered them the option of choosing Barabbas or Jesus. The crowd chose Barabbas. Well, what should I do with Jesus? Crucify him! That's what they said. And so, in verse 4, we see that he had this pain and he bore our suffering and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. This was true from his very first day of ministry. Everywhere Jesus went, he bore people's sicknesses by healing them and he carried their pains by consulting with them. Jesus was compassionate when he saw people who were hurting his heart went out to them. On the Day of Atonement, in the Jewish Day of Atonement, a special goat called the scapegoat was brought into the temple and stricken by the sins of the people. A red sash was tied around its forehead, the sash symbolizing the sins of the people. And the scapegoat, called Azazel, was then led away into the wilderness by the high priest as a way of illustrating that the people's sins had been taken away. One commentator that I was uh, reading suggests that in John 19, 15, when Pilate asked if he should release Jesus, the crowd shouted, take him away, take him away. Now, the word in Hebrews for taking him away is Azazel. The same name for the scapegoat. Of course, now, the New Testament is written in Greek, so that word would have been different. 
but it's very possible, I think it's true, that as the people shouted, they shouted in their native tongue, Hebrew, Azazel. He was stricken. In verse 5, we read, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus crucified between two criminals on the afternoon before Passover. And normally it took two or three days for the victim to die by crucifixion. Uh, but the Jews didn't like it when people were up there writhing in pain during the Passover. So just before sundown, which would be the start of Passover, the Roman guards broke the legs of the two criminals on either side of Jesus so that they would suffocate faster. Now, I don't know if you knew this or not, but the crucifixion, what killed you was suffocation, a slow, agonizing death. When they came to Jesus, he was already dead. Now, some suggest he had died from a broken heart when God laid the sins of the world upon him. We know that he was beaten, he was tortured, he was physically exhausted, but he died before they broke his leg. And instead of breaking his le leg, they pierced his pericardium with a spear to verify that he really was dead. In verse 6 of our text, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, Jesus was punished not for anything he did, not for any sin he committed. He was punished for your sin. I want you to internalize that for a moment. As I internalize it for me, he was punished for my sin. Those things that sometimes we laugh about, those things that we just don't seem to care about, he took that upon himself. In the exact moment he was punished is recorded in Mark 15, 34, for Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did this for us. And then in verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Matthew records that during Jesus' trial, he never defended himself. He never really confronted his accusers. He remained silent. The lambs that were raised in Bethlehem for slaughter in the temple were led up the Kidron Valley the day before Passover. And Jesus was led up that same path. And then in verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. So after Jesus' sixth trial, he was taken away to be crucified. Again, the crowd shouting, take him away, Azazel. 
And Ephesians 4 records that <coughs> following his death, Jesus descended into Hades uh, to a place called Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom where he freed all of the Old Testament saints who were waiting there to be led to heaven once Messiah had paid for their sins. But Jesus was cut off from the land of the living from the time of his last breath on the cross to the time that he rose again on Easter Sunday. And in verse 9, we are reminded he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Again, crucified between criminals who were deserving of their punishment. Uh, and normally, a, a, a crucified criminal would not be buried in a private tomb. He would be buried in a mass grave outside of the walls of Jerusalem. But a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea, also a Pharisee, volunteered his own tomb for Jesus' burial. And then in verse 10, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Friends, because by crushing him with the weight of our sin, you and I are set free. So number seven today, he became a guilt offering. Now, the only animals that qualified to be guilt offerings were animals that had no spots or blemishes. Jesus lived a spotless, blemishless, sinless life so that he could be qualified to become a guilt offering on our behalf. He saw his seed, the children of Abraham, when he descended to Abraham's side and he prolonged his days by hanging around 40 days after his resurrection to train his disciples. And verse 11, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And I would suggest to you that on Easter Sunday morning, when Jesus rose, he saw the light of life by rising from the dead. And the scripture says that by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Yes, he did. In Romans 5, 9, uh, we read, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? You see, his sacrifice saves us from the wrath of God that was already apportioned to those who broke God's laws. And then verse 12 finishes with a bang. The first part says, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Talk about many. In Revelation 7, Jesus is surrounded by a multitude from every people, tribe, nation, and language. And the next phrase says, because he poured out his life unto death 
You know, in the garden, as Jesus was praying, you know, he, he took his disciples in there, Peter, James, and John. They couldn't stay awake. They kept falling asleep. But Jesus would go, and he would pour his heart out to God. And, and in that prayer, he prayed, If it is possible, Father, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And the third phrase says, numbered with the transgressors. Pilate counted him with Barabbas and the others who were rebelling against the Roman Empire. He wasn't rebelling, but he was counted among the rebels. And the last phrase says, he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. On the cross, you remember what Jesus prayed as he neared the very end, Father, forgive them. Why? For they don't know what they're doing. And he answered the prayer of the thief on the cross when he asked him to remember him when he came into his kingdom. In Romans 8, we, we read that he is interceding for all of us rebels even now at the throne of God. So friends, I, I want to suggest to you that Jesus' death was historic. It, it, it had never happened before and it won't ever happen again. He's the only man in all of history and all of time who lived a perfect life and gave his life for us. And died and was raised again and ascended back to the Father. It was a supernatural death. Only God could do this. This isn't something that man can do on his own. Only God could make this happen. Only God could beat the odds that a man could be dead and yet live again after three days. It was sacrificial because he gave himself up for all of us, even though we don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. We can't earn it. And it was predicted and it was predicted over and over and over and over, over 330 times. Now, lest anyone is tempted to believe it's a giant accident, he inscribed it in Scripture centuries before it happened. What are the odds? Well, you know, if you covered the United States two feet deep in silver dollars, that still wouldn't be enough to make the odds. I want to close with this story. Author Ernest Gordon wrote the story of the miracle on the River Kwai about a Scottish soldiers who were forced by the Japanese to work on a jungle railroad during World War II in a prison camp. And under the strain of that captivity, those POWs degenerated into a group of barbarians. I mean, they, they didn't, it was all about survival for me. And that's the way they were doing it. I, you know, I just, I just need to survive. I steal what other people have, lie about other people, you know, anything just to survive until one day when a shovel went missing and the officer in charge of the camp was enraged that there was a missing shovel. And he demanded that the shovel be produced or else. And when no one in the, in the group budged, the officer got out his gun, and he threatened to kill them all. And finally, one man stepped forward, and he said, I did it. 
And the officer put his gun away, and he picked up the shovel, and he beat the man to death. When it was over, the survivors picked up his bloody body, and they carried it to the next tool check. And when they got to that next tool check, they discovered no shovel was missing. There was a miscount. And word spread like wildfire throughout that camp that an innocent man had been willing to give his life to save others. And his heroic act transformed that whole camp. And when its prisoners were finally liberated, the Allies found a group of human skeletons who were treating each other with dignity and respect. Those ransomed men forgave their captors, saying, no more killing, no more hatred. And the effect of the one who died for them had taught them how to love each other. Friends, that is the story of Jesus. It is the story of Isaiah 53. We're going to celebrate it on Easter, but we can celebrate it every day, can't we? I'm praying that you will be praying about bringing as many friends as possible to hear the story of the one who loved us against all odds and died for us against all odds and rose against all odds to give them the opportunity to experience real life. I also want to encourage you. We're, we're doing Stations of the Cross in a couple of weeks. And here's a great opportunity for you to invite some co-workers, some friends. Get some family who need to hear this story. You, you tell them, I'll pick you up. I'll meet you there. We, we'll register and we'll all go together through this. Because this could be a great opportunity for you to get in a conversation that could lead to something eternally wonderful happening. So go and register online. Make sure you do that. But I want you to remember, you've got a God who beats all the odds. And he did that for us. Father, I thank you for your love and for your grace and we thank you for Jesus, who uh, certainly is the author and the perfecter of our faith. But he came and he beat all the odds. I mean, all those prophecies from hundreds of years ago. And every prophecy Jesus fulfilled. Father, I pray that uh, this message will strengthen our own faith that as we as we look at our own situations and we think to ourselves there's no way i can make this there's no way i can get through this situation there's you know we just look at these impossible odds that are against us and yet we know that you are the god who beats the odds and I pray, God, that if there's somebody here today that needs that relationship with you, that they would not leave until they talk to somebody and they get that relationship right. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.